This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High quality information. Because high quality information informs much better decision making. Dittman Research has been providing high quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, very excited to be back here in studio with Superior Court Judge Greg Miller. How you doing, Greg? Just fine. Or Judge Miller, I should say. <laughs> Good afternoon. Happy to happy to have you here. Um, so I did a podcast with the Chief Justice recently, and I'm trying to get more judge, you know, podcasts with judges, and, and you agreed, so I'm happy to have you here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you know being a being a judge, but but first, you actually have an interesting history. A lot of you know people go to law school, they go to undergraduate, they go to law school, they become a lawyer. But you didn't do that. You did something very different path, right? I did. I took a roundabout way. I took what I thought would be two years off. Talk a little it, more. In the, there you go. I thought it would be two years off, and it turned into eight. I uh, am originally from Los Angeles, uh, left there in, what, uh, 72 or 4 or something like that. Moved to the Caribbean, worked on sailboats down there for a couple of years, sailed an old 70-year-old boat across the Atlantic. Uh, wow. No engine, no generators, just kerosene lamps and sails. How many people? Uh, there were six of us. And it took, the crossing itself took 15 and a half days. That was from Nova Scotia to Ireland. We, of course, had to get from the Caribbean up to Halifax, etc. Um but I did that for a long time, and then I also flew, and that's another sort of career I had, and and some of those eight years. Yeah, the thing I was um, talking hearing about was you were you were flying these kind of firefighting aircraft, right? So where was where was that at? All around the country, um, there were uh, they were old World War II bombers that were converted over for firefighting. Planes I used to dream of someday seeing in a in a museum, and I was fortunate enough to be able to fly these uh, to drop retardant on forest fires, and we had to be up off the ground in 15 minutes, um, and flying these things down in canyons, and it was a remarkable job in part because that kind of plane was just they're so romantic. You start up a radial engine. And they're like nothing else. Well, here we had four radial engines. They're just wonderful. And they're spitting out the white smoke and all that. But one of the things that was so unusual about the job is you go in for a drop and you push that button to drop and you turn and you look back. And in five seconds, you know if you hit it or not. You know Mm. if you're any good. There are not many jobs that have that kind of instantaneous feedback it was wonderful. When, when you hit it, it was wonderful, which <laughs> was most of the time. So did you grow up flying, or did you become a pilot when you were like... No, I learned to fly when I was 17, which is the youngest you can be and get mm-hmm. your license. Um, down in L.A., I bumped into some people who were always talking about their son, and he flew, and I thought, hmm, uh, that sounds pretty neat. And I went down to a local um, flight 
school down there. And uh, it was a beautiful day. That's when there was lots and lots of smog. And the day I went up happened to be a beautiful day. And I'll always remember the instructor, the owner of the place. He said, you're going to be thinking about one thing while you're up there. He might have said this to everybody. I don't know. He said, you're going to be thinking about how to get the money to pay for the lessons. And he was absolutely right. And I was hooked from my first flight. And so I went on and uh, got various licenses. And now I'm a flight instructor. I don't do much anymore, but flight instructor and instrument instructor and multi-engine instructor and etc. did all this, put myself through undergrad and law school doing the flying, the fire bombing. I was in Civil Air Patrol when I was a kid, and I flew glider, so I sold it when I was 14, oh, yeah. and I got my private at 16. Right. And it was the same kind of thing. Once you start, you know, doing it, and it's so much fun, it's it's not cheap. Was that up here? That was in New Mexico. All right. Uh, I've flown a little bit up here. There's all the gliders up here. There's actually a club that just formed, um, Alaska kind of gliding club and at Birchwood. They, yeah and they have one small they have a couple gliders but yeah. they're really really nice gliders that are up here there's only a few and they're all privately owned yeah whereas if you're in you probably are aware in lower 48 there's the you know clubs and operations all over right. the place where you can get, get a nice glider for not super expensive i got my glider's <clears throat> license did you really down in pennsylvania where they do the ridge the, so I've, I've been there before i used to ah, crew when good. i was younger for these big national competitions i'd go all over the country <laughs> See, you've got the bug. I think Mifflin County, right? Is that the place where yes, they have? Yes, very I've, good. I've, I've flown there before, actually. I'm impressed. Very, very scary. So if you're flying in the southwest or somewhere or the mountains where you're very high, it's but on those ridges, you're not very high. No. And you're going fast. Yes. And it's it's a little bit, the first time you, you do that, it's a little bit off-putting. If you're used to getting in thermals and going to three or five or 20,000 feet or in the wave, you know, in the mountains, it's it's a very different experience. Right. Right. I always tell people uh, if you're going to fly, you fly a glider first because you can't. You, there's no second chance to land. You can't go around. Right. You have to land or, or either good or bad. Right. Right. So, you, so you're you're flying these World War Two. What, what are they like? Uh, B seven B seventeens or no? One was a. The first one I flew was a PV-2 Harpoon, uh, built by Lockheed as a submarine patrol plane, twin engine tail dragger. Uh, my dad was a tail gunner in one of those in World War II, was shot down and lost a kidney uh, in one of those in the South Pacific. They were used in the South Pacific and the Aleutians. And then uh, another plane I flew, but just a little bit, and then just right seat was a DC-4. Oh, that's a good one. That's a, that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah, and one of them, the one I was flying used to be used in, was previously used in the Berlin airlift. So a lot of history with all these. And then that the same plane one, you flew? The plane. Wow. And then, and then the last plane I flew and was type rated in was a P2V. So the first one was by Lockheed a PV2. The last one was a, by Lockheed a P2V, a Neptune. And people are f- somewhat familiar with that one. It's called a Neptune, four engine, two radial engines, reciprocating engines, mm-hmm. and then two jet engines on the outside. This, this is the predecessor to the Orion, right? The P3? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I have a friend who's involved in a business where they use Orions to do yeah. firefighting right today. Yes. And then, and actually they've moved on from that to the, uh, um, to other planes, gosh, just bigger and bigger. Now they're even using on up to 747s and whatnot. I remember when I was in New Mexico, I grew up in New Mexico. I moved here in 04, but there was a really big, big, big fire, uh, maybe in late nineties, early 2000s in Los Alamos, you may have, it was a big, you know, they were, houses were burning, 
and the um, the Russians actually offered one of those Anton- Antonovs, mm-hmm. those big, big, big. Mm-hmm. I think it's the biggest tanker in the world. It's this Russian Ant- Antonov, and they actually offered to send it over. And for whatever, because it was the Los Alamos Labs, and I don't know, they were right. they basically were like, no, we're we're okay. And I always remember thinking, they, what's the big deal? You know, it's just water, or retardant. But they, yeah. But I, I looked up that plane, and it's so big. It's huge. It's just, it's. I, I forget what the capacity is of the water right. retardant, but it's it's something crazy. Yeah, no, it's huge. So we we were based uh, different places around the country, and we'd follow the season. It would dry out in some place, like New Mexico, for instance. Alamogordo was where mm-hmm. one of the companies I worked for was based, and and I was based in Albuquerque for a, a little while. That's from and from the, right near there. And then it would get so it would it would start you know, lightning everywhere and you're flying, flying, flying. And then all of a sudden the lightning's turning to thunderstorms with lots of water and nothing's burning and that season's over. Now you're off to some other place, usually the Northwest. So I would go from South Carolina to Pennsylvania to the Southwest, like Arizona, New Mexico, and then on up to the Northwest, uh, Washington, Idaho, places like that. And then through it all, uh, California would burn. So that season would take me from about February or March to about mid-September by going to the cool. following the fire season around the country. So this is after your undergraduate? It was before and during. So where would you go to undergraduate? Reed College in Portland. And I actually would have to uh, start school about two weeks late and leave about a week or two early, get all my finals done, you know, sweet talk my professors and uh, get to be able to take the my finals a little early because the fires weren't so, going to wait. So you were really, you were, you were late, late teens, early 20s doing this. Yes, yes. I, as I say, I took about eight years off, did this for six years, the flying. And so by the time I got out of, Law school, I was a fair bit older than, than many. So during the, all this firefighting and flying, uh, when did you or why did you decide, what, what was the reason to go to law school? Because this sounds really fun. I mean, this sounds... I don't know. There was, I, I can't answer that. I, there was no single event in my life where I said, oh, I, I want to be a lawyer. It wasn't like I had anybody in my family who was a lawyer, and so I don't know. I don't know. It seemed like a natural progression, but I, huh. I can't point to any <laughs> single thing. Where'd you go to law, law school? Northeastern, back in Boston. So did you do the kind of the straight through, or were you, were you working and going, was it three, three years mostly for law school? Three right? years, yeah. So did you, after law school, go right into doing law, or were you still doing other? Came up here and went into law, yeah. A private firm, Birch Horton, Bittner, and Chereau. Oh, they're still, they're still around. Very much so, and that's where I worked almost my entire time until I became a judge. And the only exception is uh, went down to uh, California for two years pretty early on in my career down the Bay Area and then came back up here. So, so you came to Alaska, what, what have been the 80s or? Uh, first time in 85, permanently in 87. What brought you up here? Was just Good question. I'd, I always wanted to come to Alaska coming from L.A., by golly, I always wanted to go to Alaska. One of the reasons I went to Northeastern was because they had a very strong Alaska connection and they had an internship program, and I knew I could come up here through that. I'd never been to Alaska, but I sure knew that's 
this is where I wanted to be. And I've been up here now 35 years. I think a lot of pilots are drawn to Alaska too. Sure. For the, for all the flying. If you fly, <clears throat> there's no place like this. My sister lives in LA and I go down and visit her and it's, I grew up in New Mexico. My, my aunt lived in Thousand Oaks, so I'd mm-hmm. go there a lot. And I mean, it's, I like to visit it, but you know, you get off the plane and right away the traffic and it just never ends unless you're driving at three in the morning. Yep. It's, there's a little bit of traffic. She, there. she thinks I'm crazy for being up here. And I think she's crazy for being sure. down there. Sure. sure. So when you were, you with Birch Horton, were you, I mean, that's, that's a civil law, right? That's Mostly when I went there, one of the reasons I went there is because uh, they had a uh, strong criminal law practice also. And I went there and I wanted to do criminal law and I wanted to get into court every day. And I did that for about two years and then moved into the more into the civil side at Birch Horton, kept my, my foot in the door always with doing criminal cases, but more civil. So when you came in, you said permanently in 80, 85 or? Up here permanently, yeah. 87. So that was right in during the whole big recession, right? The oil kind of price went down a lot. There was all the start. So that was, but you, you, I mean, you had a job, so it probably wasn't as, for you, you were working, but you probably right. saw, experienced all that, all that economic kind of downturn that was sure. happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems like the, the laws, there's, there's always busy, there's always room for. For lawyers, though. Well, it depends it's on always what, work. what field you're in. Um, I was fortunate, and, and uh, it's a good-sized firm, and, and uh, we, got, we got the work and got great cases, and it was a fantastic firm. I loved it. So, so you were appointed by Parnell, I think, right? Sean, Governor Parnell? By Governor Parnell, yes. So you— 2011. And for most listeners are familiar with this, but we, we have this kind of interesting in the Constitution, the Judicial Council. So if you want to be a—there's an, an opening, you, you put your name forward to the Judicial Council. And what happened? You saw an, op- you saw an opening and you decided— Correct. And it's about a six-month process. It's a long process. It's an arduous process. It's a really good process. Um, and uh, just—I'll be very brief. Hmm. If you want me to go through the— Oh, sure, sure, briefly. Um, The solicitation goes out. Somebody's retiring. There's going to be an opening, whatever. And uh, um, you put your name in. And then the first step of three stages is the Judicial Council sends out a survey uh, to all the lawyers in the state uh, to rate applicants. And there might be anywhere from five to 15 applicants for a seat any given time, depending on where and when. And, and this, uh, is all, this is the Superior Court, the Supreme Court. This is all the different, it, it, it applies to all the different positions. Yes, the process is the same. You apply for a particular seat. So the seat I was applying for was Anchorage Superior Court. If I wanted to uh, change, you know, after five years, oh, I don't want to be in Anchorage, I want to go to wherever, some other place, and there's an opening, you have to start a new and apply for that. You can't just move around. So at any rate, the process, three steps, um, the survey. And you're rated by everybody, and that, that'll be a kind of a numerical <coughs> rating on five different questions as well as comments. And it's anonymous, and it can be uh, uh, very interesting to get some of those, uh, see how you rate. And anyway, can you, can you next, see, can, Do you see all that? 
you see the numbers, the raw scores, you don't see who rated you. It's anonymous that mm-hmm. way. The next stage then uh, is you're interviewed by the Judicial Council, and that's seven people, uh, three lawyers who are uh, three lawyers and three public members plus the Chief Justice. Chief Justice only casts a vote if there's a tie. Um, and then from that, um, at least two names will be sent by the Judicial Council on up to the governor. Can be more, can't be fewer than two unless they find that of that panel, they, they just don't think there's qualified people. But normally, at least two, sometimes four, five, six names will go up to the governor. So that's step two. Step three, then, is your name goes to the governor. And the governor can pick from those names that go to him or her, uh, whomever he or she wants. And that process, that last part is 45 days. And so from beginning to end, it's generally about six months from when you put your name in, surveys being done, interviews, et cetera, about six months. When you were first became a lawyer and were doing law, you, you were practicing law for quite, because you were appointed in 2011. So you were, you were practicing lawyer for 25 years for decades did you at some any any point say maybe one day i'll be a judge or did this just kind of you saw the opening and decided to apply i i certainly did not build my career thinking this will help me to become a judge i want to be a judge i never looked at it that way i just did my work day by day and at some point uh i saw an opening and i thought I'd apply and did. So you go to the council, they obviously, how many, do you remember how many names went to the governor when you were? Four, I want to say. I think there were 10 applicants and four names went up. So then once the governor gets those names, he or she interviews those applicants. Uh, So I assume you met met with the governor, probably his team, and there was an interview process? That's correct. That's correct. What was that like? I mean, that was probably a whole different world compared to <laughs> what you've been doing before. Every part of it was neat. The, the, uh, that's fun. I mean, you don't get to meet with a governor too terribly often in life. And uh, you just take the questions as they come. The Judicial Council interview was probably the best interview I've ever had. They were very good at asking their questions in a very um, – orderly way and marching right through. Everybody would get to ask two questions and go around the table and they didn't repeat things. They were very, very, very good. Um, The whole process was really enjoyable. Um, Hard and you sweat bullets, but it was really enjoyable. So, So from the 45 day period, at some point, all four went through the interviews and then you're kind of wait, you're waiting, I guess, right? You're correct. Am I going to be a judge or am I going to just keep working for this law firm? And you wait and you wait and you get the call generally on about the 45th day. And Justice Winfrey gave me a, he told me, and I don't know if you listened to that whole podcast or at all, but yes. he said that he had done the interview and then they called him back for like a follow-up and he wasn't sure if it was going to be some question about some high profile issue or something. And and then they came back and they said, when can you start? I do remember that answer. So what, what, was, what was your story of how, how you became, found out you were picked? I was in my office working and got the call. Um, it was just kind of a normal day. You knew that was the day. I mean, you're watching the calendar. 
Um, they're gonna they're gonna tell you either way, probably. Yes. Yes or no. Yes. Did the governor call you, or was it one of his? It was not the governor. It was um, I want to say head of boards and commission. Oh, it probably was Jason Hooley back it then. It was. If he was, yeah, he was doing that for a long time. Yes. Yes. So so he he said what? Congratulations. We're you're the you're the you're the, you're the pick. Yeah, I think he might have said something funny like, well, do you still want the job? <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, you know right away. I didn't have to think about it. So at that point, you know right away, you're, I mean, your life's right. changing pretty drastically because you're, now you're going to the other side of right. the, the, the law where you're, on, you're sitting behind the bench instead of in right. front of it. And then you have to wrap up your practice. You know, I was in private practice and you got clients who are depending on you. And so it takes a while. It was two or three months before I started. I was appointed, let's see, I was appointed, I want to say in January. I guess it was about a month because uh, I started on Valentine's Day in 2011. So about oh, a month, month and a half. I would have thought it would have taken longer to get everything kind of wrapped up. Only a month, huh? Yeah. So yeah. Had, you, had you been in the courtroom a lot? When you were a lawyer, or were you more <laughs> litigating and, and out of the courtroom? No, I was in, in the courtroom a lot, uh, all the time. Uh, as I mentioned, when I went to Birch Horton, one of the reasons I went there was so I could get into the court every day. And uh, loved it. It's not for everybody, but I loved it. I, I, can't, even, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Uh, so I don't want to ask about any specific cases, but you have had some, you've been assigned some higher profile cases. And... I think some people don't understand, and I didn't understand until recently, you don't pick the cases, you get, it's a random assignment. Talk about how you get a case assigned to you. It's just random. It's just random, computer random. There's 17 superior court judges in Anchorage, and we have, I believe the number is about 725 cases per judge. Wow, 700? And 25, yes. And um, Gee, so how many of the, I assume some of those are, Maybe not much is happening. and That's right. They're not all active. That, that, I couldn't possibly focus on 725 different cases all at once. But um, that's how many cases uh, each Superior Court judge has in Anchorage. And every venue might be different. And I think that's the number these days. Um, at any rate, you take the cases as they come. So, so a lot of the, you know, I, I follow the Juno and the politics and I do a lot of podcasts with politicians and everybody's, what's, you know, what's the public saying or what's going on. But so you've had some high profile cases that have been, you know, covered pretty widely in the media. You, you, we were talking before, you don't, you don't, you're not going and reading all the stuff. No. See, how do you not, to me, it's like from my world, I want to read, you know, (laughs) But it's it's political, so it's it's a different kind of mentality. But you don't you don't read any of the comments or the articles or correct, correct. I deliberately stay away from that. When they start to hit the press, I'm not going to read the paper at that point. And um, so the answer is zero. Do you ever have to if you're because you're probably all different friends, and if somebody brings something up, you have to about a case or something. You you have to kind of step away or you can't, you can't be talking, you can't be talking about it. Right? You know, that's a good question. Your first couple years, um, your friends kind of want to talk with you about it. And frankly, you want to talk about the job. It's the most exciting thing you've ever done. Uh, it's a wonderful job. And, uh, you know, it's the stuff they make movies out of and stuff like that. It's, it's a wonderful job in so many different respects, but you have to learn. You can't talk about any of that. You just 
can't. It stops in the office. And it can be difficult. The first couple of years is a bit of an adjustment period because you, uh, you just can't have some of those conversations. And your friends learn that too. Mm-hmm. They do. So when you became a judge, you had had probably colleagues and people you'd worked pretty closely with. And sometimes you can't take a case, right? Because if you have a friendship or a, right. a former colleague, I don't know, how, what, what are the rules? Do you, do you kind of know the rules or does each judge decide, oh, I, I can't for whatever reason take this case because of a person or a connection? Uh, the rules are set forth in the, uh, it's a rule, uh, set forth in the uh, rules of, uh, professional responsibility, judicial responsibility, judicial ethics. Um, and basically you can't take a case if, let's say, uh, it involved the law firm where I was for a period of two years. You can't take a case, there's various subparts to this rule. You can't take a case if um, it was your former client. All those sorts of things that you, pretty common sense sort of things. Um but then you also um, can elect not to take a case if even after that two-year period, for instance, um, it just involves a friend, like a, a, a case from my law firm with people I worked with then, um, even if it was five years later. Well, I wouldn't take one of those cases. There's enough other judges to cover all the mm-hmm. cases and... Um, that wouldn't be good for anybody for me to do that, for anybody to do that. So at any rate, those are kind of the rules. So something else I've heard, and I think if you follow the judicial system, you know this, but if you, there's some kind of rule, if you don't get your work done, some, so the, the docket, I guess, you don't get paid, right? That is correct. You have six months. If uh, from the last point that a motion was ripe or a trial was over, and that sounds like an awful lot of time, and it is, um, but the bottom line is if you don't get a decision out in those six months, you don't get paid. Um, and you get reports, know how you're doing on your timing, that sort of thing. Um, but I try to make sure that I'm never close to that. So I wanted to ask you as well, as well um, with COVID, this is the big factor in the whole world right now. And it's really affected the, the court system on jury trials and, and all kinds of, you know, meeting in person or Zoom, you know, Zoom. What's it been like, you know, you were a judge for eight years, nine years before before COVID happened. How, how much has it impacted your courtroom and, and, you know, the whole judicial branch, I guess? Talk, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, that's a good question because I think probably most people think, oh, jury trials aren't happening. Um, the courts aren't busy. What are you doing? We are busy, as busy now, if not busier now than we ever have been. And I think most judges would say the same thing. You're right. We're not doing jury trials. We started those back up and then the Delta variant came along and the numbers shut up and okay, uh, we're not doing the jury trials quite yet. We hope to get back to those, but um, we're not doing those. That's a very small percentage of what we do. Um, Most most, uh, cases don't go to trial, right? That's correct about 96% of all cases settle at some point. It might be mid-trial. Is it civil and criminal? Civil, criminal, administrative, you name it. Um, But at any rate, we're incredibly busy. We've had to be uh, um, creative in using Zoom 
Alaska was actually uh, at the front end, sort of the cutting edge um, across the country when COVID first came out of using telephones. And I was on a, a, not a committee, but I was on some conference once, a national one with a judge from Texas and and um, a couple other judges, and, and they were quite um, new to using phones. And that's what it was, the conference or the, uh-huh. this uh, uh, was all about. And I was able to say, well, it's old hat for us. We <laughs> do it every single day and have been for decades because of the distances up here and the lack of roads. And so um, we were able to go with that flow. But we miss uh, uh, the flow of regular courtroom day, that's for sure. I don't know if you yeah. saw last year, it was kind of famous. There was a, a court thing in Texas, and the guy accidentally put on a cat filter. Oh, yes. And he was a lawyer, and he was, he was, oh, yes. <laughs> looked like a little cat. I mean, it was the funniest thing. Cause... I'm sure there's not a lawyer <laughs> or a judge around who hasn't seen that one. So, so, you know, I don't know how long it's going to last. I think everybody's kind of wondering with, with the COVID, but I mean, I think like other, like all aspects of life, this has really changed how people view or live. You know, you can do a lot more on Zoom. You can maybe meet on the Zoom instead of meeting in person. I think for me, I want to meet in person, but do you think this has created changes to the to the judicial system that's going to be there forever? Or do you, do you see it sure. just going back to how it was hopefully someday and how it used to be before, before COVID? Well, a bit of each. Um, you know, life being what it is, we tend to gravitate back towards what we were doing before. So I think there'll be a lot of non-changes in so many respects, uh, but some of the changes are, uh, that will happen are good ones, more efficient on small hearings where you're just checking in, okay, trial's uh, scheduled two weeks from now, we're just checking in, yes, you're really ready. Well, you don't have to come to court for that. Call in. Um, some of those types of efficiencies no doubt will stick with us and should. It's a good benefit. So you're coming up on 10 years? 11. 11 years as a, as a judge, um, what's what's kind of the plan? Because I think you're, I'm not, I don't want to ask how old you are, but... It's 68. A, I, I'm going to ask because in this case, there's something in the Constitution, right? 70. So I've always thought that was, because that, that was put in place in 1955. 59. Or 59, sorry. Yeah. The, the, the convention was 55 and then right. they adopted it. So at the time, the life expectancy, so it's seven, you have to retire, force retirement at 70. That's correct. At the time, it was, the life expectancy was much lower. Um, I wonder if they should, I've always said maybe they should change that and raise it a bit. Because a lot of people who, who, I think it was, who was, I don't want to say the wrong name, but I know somebody, I don't want to say the name, it might be wrong, but they didn't want to retire. I mean, they basically said they had to retire. Oh, sure. That's not unusual. Um, it's a wonderful job. And, uh, you know, 70 is fairly young these days, but you see in like the airline industry, it used to be that you had to retire. I think it was either at 60 or 62. I can't remember Mm -hmm. if you were uh, flying the airlines and uh, that's been bumped up. I think it's age 65 now. Um, Whether or not that will ever change for judges, I don't know. See, with the, with the U S with the Supreme court, there's no, there's no limit. So well, with the federal, federal system, there isn't. And indeed, if I'm not mistaken, with no other part of uh, employment in Alaska, is there uh, an age out? I think it's just judges. 
I wonder if that I could, could be, be mistaken. Maybe that could be challenged, you know, <laughs> through the through the courts. <laughs> so you got what two years? About two years left then. Yes, um, but I just announced my retirement. Uh, really, just announced it. Oh, did you? Oh, uh, really? Effective May thirty one. So I've got a long time to go yet, but I'll be retiring about a year early. Um, one of the reasons I'm not retiring until May 31 is because of that six month process I described at the beginning of this oh, yes. podcast. Well, you want to, um, step out in an orderly way so that your shoes are filled and cases don't, um, go waiting. And so at any rate, I, I timed that in part so that judicial counsel can send out the survey, do the interviews, the name would go to the governor, et cetera. So at some point, I guess November, December, will you not get new, will you not get new cases or will you still get? <laughs> I'll get new cases to the very last, I'm sure. And then the new, the, will the new judge inherit those? Is that how that yes. works? Okay. Yes. Wow. So you got about nine, nine months left, huh? Yes. What, what, ooh, what do you, what do you, what's the plan after that? What's the plan? Um, well, a fair bit of travel. Do you have a, you have a plane or no? You had a, I you, do not. I was building an airplane. Um, I've owned planes before, but I was building an airplane. Um, but, uh, I think probably go by van and check out different places on the road. They, they call so, that the van life. There you go. That's what all the kids are doing. There you go. Wow. I, that's congratulations. I didn't, Thanks. uh, is that out? Is this? The first yeah. time this has been put out there public, I mean, it's recorded, but it'll be posted soon. First so. time on a podcast, that's for sure. Wow. Um, but no, I announced um, to my colleagues and friends three, four days ago. Well, congratulations, Thank Judge you. Miller. So you, you got a Thank you. big nine-month wrap-up there, huh? Yes. Well, I appreciate yes. you doing the podcast. I, I really, you know, you fly, and I, I'm trying to, I actually want to get my, I've been meaning to do it forever, my single, I flew a little bit single engine, I never got the license, but mm -hmm. hopefully next year is going to be, uh, after the next session, I'll probably try to get my, my single engine uh, it's, private it's a, license next summer. It, as you know, it's just such a, a wonderful activity. It's all-consuming flying. You never, When you're up there, you never think about anything else. It's just the flying. And there's so many different types of things you can fly, types of flying. It's just wonderful. It's so fun. I think of the gliders, you know, you can mm – -hmm. I think folks who don't – Fly gliders don't realize they can go very high. They can go in the wave. They can go to with oxygen 20, 25, 30,000 feet. And mm -hmm. it's so quiet. I've done a loop and a roll in a glider. Yeah. Oh, me. I've done, me too. Yeah. Pl tons. Yeah. Well, I've fun. only done the one. <laughs> we used to have this glider called, called a Grobe. And it's a, kind of built for kind of aerobatics. And we used to f go really high in Moriarty, which is east of the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque. And there's this wave we'd get in the winter, winter time that you go very high and you could just, you could do loops and eight figure eight and you could fly upside down and you could do it for, there's so much altitude, you can do it for. And it's all at this slow motion pace. A glider is so slow compared to a regular plane. It's so relaxing I, to do that. I once time, once I put a little cup I brought with me and I put some water in it and I put it on the, oh. above the instrument panel. We, we started doing the loop and, it, you know, because of the force, it wouldn't. It wouldn't spill. You're good. Bob so. Hoover used to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Judge Miller, it was great doing the podcast. I congratulations Thank on your you. retirement. I didn't know about that, but it's uh, it's good. good. I love hearing about your background and and every lawyer, you know, has a different path. And yours is very interesting. I think you know. With uh, what, what, one more thing, when you were in school, what what, what the kids were probably the your peers, I assume, younger than you. A lot of them. Yes. Were, yes. were you? Were you 
saying, hey, I got to go fight fires, and they were thinking, who is this crazy guy? You know, when I, <laughs> when I was at, at Reed College undergrad, um, most people there did go directly from high school to college, and I, as I mentioned, I'd take a bunch of years off. So there were a group of us uh, and we, who were a little bit older, and we, but not that much older at that point, and we started this group called the Geriatric Club, and you had to be over 25. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for doing the podcast, Judge Miller. I really I really appreciate it. Great, great, great conversation. Thank you. We'll do we'll do Thank maybe after you retire, much. we'll do another one. You can if you can you, find me on the road. You, you, you yeah. can you can go off leash on that one. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot, Judge Miller. I appreciate okay. it. Thank you, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.